0: Welcome to another Radio Drome special. This time, I'm going to be giving you guys the interview that I did with Peter David. Peter David's a name you might not know unless you're a big comic book fan. You'd know him from The Incredible Hulk, from Dread Star, from any number of comic books. He's a fantastic writer. He's also written Star Trek novels, Star Wars novels. He's written episodes of TV series. He wrote Trancers 4 and 5, as well as Oblivion 1 and 2 for Full Moon. Peter David is a fantastic writer. I talked to him a little bit about working with licensed properties and some of his writing style, which I think if you guys do not read Peter David, you need to. I also recommend picking up his book But I Digress as well as it, as well as its sequel, which which collects some of the best of his columns from Comic Buyers Guide. Here is Peter David. You've had a career that expands since the first thing I remember reading from you was in the eighties. Do you look back at your early work and kind of go, wow, what was I thinking? Or, damn, I was I was dead on right then, too.
1: Oh, no. I, I look up on my early stuff, and all I can see are the flaws. But then again, I look at most of my stuff, and all I can see are the flaws. I have very little work that I would look back on and say, wow, I got that absolutely right. So, yeah, I, I tend to look at the early 80s stuff, and all I can see is the stuff that I would never do now.
0: When you do that, do you kind of wish that because we're going to get into some of your lost works in a moment. Do you kind of wish that some of those were lost works? I like seeing the progression of a writer. And right. I, I'll say even when I, when I see your really early stuff, it feels like Peter David, even if it's early Peter David.
1: No, I, I don't re- I don't wish that anything would go away. I mean, I'm proud of everything that I've done. You know, there's stuff that I feel that I could do much better now. I indeed had that opportunity. For example, when um, Nightlife was republished by Ace Books, we were originally just going to we published the original novel, and I was going to go through it and make some adjustments to make it more modern day, and by that I figured what I would do is, you know, for example, substitute computers every place I had people doing typewriters, that kind of thing. But as I read the manuscript, as I read the original manuscript, I was struck by all the things that I felt the, where the book was coming up short, and uh, place where I did shortcuts because I didn't know how to, to do it right. So I wound up doing a heavy rewrite on the manuscript to such a degree that the original manuscript was 65,000 words and the rewritten one was 95,000 words. So I wound up resulting in two more books because I came up with so much additional material to put in. So it's uh, you know it's, writing is a continuing learning process. If you look at stuff that you did 20, 30 years ago and you're completely satisfied with it, chances are there's something wrong with the writing or wrong with you.
0: Now my favorite run of yours, I know everyone's going to say the Hulk, and I I don't disagree that your Hulk run is a great run. I got to go with with the run you did on Dreadstar. I think uh-huh. I absolutely loved it, and you had you had a perfect example of the kind of humor that I thought you injected into Dreadstar was what was basically a throwaway joke that I thought was so brilliant. Two aliens were like looking at a planet or something, and they said it's like 9,000 Gleeble Globs away. And then that ha- that little asterisk said, that's like 14,000 bleens. Yes. And I just, I thought that joke was brilliant that you translated gobbledygook into other gobbledygook. Other I, gobbledygook.
1: Well, that's because I was, it has become such a trope in comic books that they would come up with these fictional units of measurement and then have little captions that indicated what it corresponded to in human measurement. And I always thought that was such a complete waste of time. I mean who do you think you're fooling here? You know? So I thought it would be funny to have a unit of measurement and have it it transcribed to another unit of alien measurement. So you still would actually have no freaking clue how far it was. And And uh, yeah, I I remember doing that. That was fun.
0: I just thought that was, and it was such a, like a throwaway gag that I thought perfectly exemplified the new style because your Dreadstar run, at least to me was so different than the Luke McDonnell and Jim Starlin stuff that had come before mm. it. Was that a yeah. specific conscious choice that you wanted to make it lighter and more fun, or or, or how did that happen? And did you get in, any kind of interference from Jim Starlin since they were his No crew?
1: interference whatsoever. Jim gave me total carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. I, to this day, have no idea why in God's name Jim thought that I would be a good person to follow him on Drip Star because my writing style is 180 degrees from Jim's. And um, I so I really have no idea, unless he just wanted someone to take it in a wildly different direction. And he said to me, I want you to come on this book and write whatever you want to write. And he insisted on, uh, I, think, I think like once or twice, he asked about stuff that I was planning, mostly because, he was just curious as to where I was going. Not because he was planning to countermand me or anything, but he was just curious to know what I was doing and loved it every time that I told him. But yeah, Jim could not have been more supportive.
0: The one thing that I get when from people when I see them re-going over these is just mm-hmm. how much of a stark difference it is almost right off the bat. Because the Luke McDonald era, I, I enjoyed it. I'm not complaining about it. But it was mm-hmm. dark. It was heavy. And then your stuff was much lighter and fun. You didn't really make a big transition period. you just kind of like, yeah, all that dark, heavy stuff is over. Did, yeah. did fans react well to that? Because I, I admit, I didn't read these when they were new. I got all these after the fact. So I don't know what the reaction was when these were first coming
1: out. I honestly, God, don't remember. I hope they did. But, you know, this is like 30 years ago. I barely remember stuff I wrote 30 years ago, much less what somebody wrote about what I wrote 30 years ago. Plus, it was really before the prevalence of the internet, where I, you know, you can find out what everybody's thinking within minutes of the book coming out. I honestly don't remember any fan letters. First, got them. They, I don't think they sent them to me, so I have no idea what the fan reaction was. I hope they liked it.
0: And then let's let's use Dreadstar to move into the lost works. Now, when okay. when Dreadstar was canceled, first mm. kind of went under relatively quickly. You, you, there was a the 1994 miniseries, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Planet Scevo was just awesome. But oh, thank you. But I, I see on your webpage you have a lost work of a, the Fall series. Is that essentially what we got in 1994, or was it something totally different?
1: The Fall? I have no idea what that is.
0: Uh, it's listed on your webpage as a lost Dreadstar story. Really? Okay.
1: Yeah. I have no idea. It, maybe it was the very last story that I was planning to do, but I don't think that that was going to be a limited series or anything.
0: PeterDavid.net, Dreadstar The Fall. This would have been a three-issue miniseries continuing the Dreadstar storyline from the monthly series. First comics went out of business before the miniseries could be published. It is unknown how much of the art was completed.
1: I, to the best of my knowledge, none of the art was completed. I don't even remember writing it. I'm just
0: going off your webpage because I didn't know I anything you. about that I one. Believe so. I believe Which... you. I
1: have no recollection of The Fall. I'm sorry.
0: Okay. Well, and then that brings us into, you've got a lot of lost or unpublished works. Does it kind of bother you that you work so hard on these things? I mean, I know you get paid for it regardless, but that the audience is never going to be able to see, like, the Nightmare on Elm Street stories you wrote or, or anything like that?
1: Well, it's a little frustrating, but I really don't have any place to be upset about it because there's lots of people out there who work just as hard on stuff, and none of their stuff gets out. I mean, there are people who work on screenplays, dozens and dozens, dozens, hundreds, thousands of screenplays that people work on, and nobody ever sees the screenplays. People work on novels, and the novels never get published. I mean, at least I'm fortunate enough to be able to get my work out there. I don't see how I really have the right to be bitchy or cranky because some of my work didn't get out of the audience. I mean, do I regret that some of the stuff didn't get out there? Yeah. I'm frustrated that nobody will ever see the Nightmare on Elm Street stories because I thought they were perfectly fine and and perfectly entertaining. Probably my greatest frustration, the thing that didn't see print that still bugs me to this day, was my Star Wars script. I I loved my Star Wars script. Dark Horse commissioned me to do a four-issue series called Star Wars Splinters. And essentially alternate reality versions of Star Wars. The the, the challenge was to take a moment in Star Wars and have it zig instead of zag and see how it all came out. And I chose what, to my mind, was one of the major moments in Star Wars, a moment that I actually immortalized in a short piece called Skippy the Jedi Droid, in which the R5-D4 unit winds up malfunctioning. And I came up with a story in which the R5-D4 unit did not, in fact, malfunction and i followed the story from there and the way that the story wound up going it it ended with princess leia was now a sith lord and ruling the empire with an iron fist aided by her her young student and consort luke skywalker and this is going to be a completely demented story which it has to be if you're going to end it with with you know with luke and leia as lovers and i i just loved it and dark horse loved it and we sent it to lucas film and lucas film had said that they were perfectly okay with this whole storyline and then they read it and they came back and they said no you can't do this it has to end with luke and leia saving the day and the empire being destroyed and we said well that's the end of star wars they said yes it has to end like the end of star wars you can't go off in a totally different direction which frustrated me because you know and I said well then I'm out because that's not what I wanted to write and it frustrates me to this day I mean the original story was going to be so cool the cover for issue 3 was going to be layered with the Darth Maul facial makeup you know it was just going to be so freaking cool we didn't get to do it and if, if I had to pick one story of mine that I get frustrated about never having had a chance to see the uh, to, to see the eyes uh, you know to, to, to get to the audience it would be that one
0: well, do you ever think, with the considerable clout that you do have, do you ever Ooh. try and buy the rights to maybe these stories and publish them yourself,
1: like but maybe? How I buy the rights to Star Wars? You know.
0: Well, I don't mean Star Wars. I mean like maybe the Freddy Kruegers, or or you know just or maybe even make a deal with Marvel or something like that, or whoever happens to own Freddy Krueger to just print these as a special thing because I think honestly. The Lost Works of Peter David would probably sell quite well.
1: Well, if you say so, I don't know if people would be that interested.
0: I I think you're underestimating the influence you have have and had on the industry.
1: Okay. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one, but okay.
0: Well, and then that also brings up, I guess, what my next question would be. Since you work with a lot of licensed properties, Mm -hmm. do you get that kind of interference regularly, or do you normally have free reign to do whatever you want with X Factor, The Hulk, Disney, any of the DC characters or
1: depends, any of the cartoons? The li- it depends on the license or It depends on the property. There are some properties that I have total freedom to do whatever the hell I want. There are other properties uh, where the uh, the overseeing of it is extremely stringent and can be an extreme pain in the ass. It, it really depends upon the respective situation. It even depends upon the people involved. I mean, once upon a time, writing Star Trek was an incredible pain in the ass, because of one guy who shall go Nameless, Richard Arnold was his name, who worked for Gene Roddenberry, and he made everybody's lives working for Star Trek absolutely miserable. And then he was fired, and suddenly it was much easier to write Star Trek novels. So you see, it really depends upon the people involved.
0: Well, and then that also, I guess, brings up then, look at, you know, you did, you did those movies for Charles Band, Tranchers 4 and 5 and Oblivion yep. 1 and 2, which, by the mm-hmm. way, I think the Oblivion films are incredibly underrated. That's the real oh, Cowboys and Aliens, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, when they announced Cowboys and Aliens, I'm going. I did that ten years ago, didn't
0: I? Charles Band actually re-released the movie as with a very Cowboys and Aliens esque cover for the Oblivion DVDs, which I thought was kind of shameless, but for Charles Band, kind of right up his alley, too. Yeah, really. No, did you have a good experience on those? Because I noticed you you only worked on those four, and that was it, really. Right. Is, there, is there a reason you that's didn't do more?
1: No, after that, I wound up joining the WGA and then could no longer work for Charlie because he only hired people who were not WGA members.
0: What, what did you think about how the, the movies turned out, All the, the four of them, the two Oblivions and the two Transers?
1: Um, I loved the Oblivion films. I was frustrated by the Transer movies because Charlie told me to just, you know, have a totally unbridled imagination, just write whatever I wanted to write. He didn't really tell me that we had no budget. I mean, the are thinking a budget of like a dollar ninety-eight. It was frustrating because I wrote these these big sprawling adventurous epics, and Dave Nutter, who was the director, did the best he could with resources that he had. But there were whole, there were scenes that were incredibly winnowed down. I mean, the, the 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 example that I've used to describe is the following: you know, the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark goes into the cavern and he grabs the thing and things are shaking and the darts go flying and the rock follows him and he's in the lake and all that stuff. You know that, right? Yes. I said, if that were a full moon picture, I want you to envision that you have no money for sets, no money for stuntmen, no money for special effects, no money for extras. The beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, if it had been filmed by full moon, would have been as follows. Indiana Jones, by himself, in a jungle, creeps up to an outdoor podium on which the thing is set. He creeps up to it, switches it out, the camera starts to shake, Indy looks around and runs. The end. That's the opening of Raiders. You see the problem. It was the same problem writing chances 4 and 5. I wrote these big, brawling, adventurous epics and maybe a fifth of what I wrote actually got on the screen. That's why the second one was like 65 minutes. They cut all my big adventure stuff, and that was tremendously frustrating. I mean, I will I will stand right by the screenplays that I wrote because I'm really proud of them. They were not accurately represented in the movie. That I the remember
0: sample. reading in But I Digress that you, all, yeah, you really wanted Ron Perlman for the Caliban
1: character, too. Desperately. He auditioned. I was there for his audition. I chatted with him, he was really a cool guy. Um, and his agent, wisely, in my opinion, said, you know, uh they, they negotiated for money and they couldn't come to terms on money probably because Fullman wasn't actually interested in paying any. And uh yeah, I mean th- you know who you know who he had reading for that? Ron Perlman and French Stewart. He read for Caliban's henchmen. They were the guys I wanted. I wanted Ron Perlman for Caliban, French Stewart for Caliban's henchmen. And we got the guys we did, who I thought did a perfectly good job, but they didn't bring it to the level that a Ron Perlman and a French Seward would have been able to bring it to.
0: Now, what is the difference between those two and the Oblivion movies, which seemed to have a lot of money, because those had so such a huge cast, tons of yeah. costumes, effects. You got Andrew Divoff as Red Eye, Vander. Yeah. I'm sure I just butchered her name, as Lash. And- yeah. What was the difference between the Oblivions and the Translators? Had, we,
1: had, we had George Takei, baby. It was, it was, it was a, gr- those, that was a great experience. They had money for those. I don't know where Charlie Band got the money for it, but the two Oblivion movies, which were filmed uh, simultaneously, um, he actually had a few million dollars to spend. I don't know how he had a few million dollars to spend, but he did. Uh, you know, he, we had an actual Western set, which was kind of unusual, we, we, you know, we we had Julie Newmar, for God's sake. Carl Streichen was wonderful. I mean, we had a terrific cast, and I don't know whether they just all agreed to work for next to nothing, or whether he actually had money to pay these folks. But uh, it was it was a hoot and a half. I mean, uh, Oblivion was actually actually fulfills the storyline as I wrote it. I was kind of astounded. Nothing was cut from the two screenplays that I wrote. We were really astounded when he actually found the money. To give us our effects with giant monsters at the end of the second movie. I mean, you know, we actually had giant monsters. I couldn't believe it.
0: Why did you then agree to work on the Oblivions after the experience on Trancers? I mean, even though it turned out in your favor, did you kind of feel that your Oblivion scripts get, got in? T-
1: because by the time I was working on Oblivion, tra- I did I had not seen Trancers yet.
0: Oh, so you didn't know how I they remember, turned I was out only,
1: yet. I was only in Romania for a week or two. I was totally unaware of how much had been cut. Okay. And how much had not been filmed.
0: Have you ever tried to to make other movies with whether it's Charles Band or or not because I see you've got a lot of scripts for TV like I personally would have really liked to have seen your X-Files script, especially season 1 X-Files. I think that would have been really interesting. It been
1: cool, but it didn't go
0: anywhere. What do you think of when when people look at your work? from the newer stuff to the 90s stuff, when, when they look at your work, and it always seems to have a lighter tone to it. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but I mean, mm-hmm. like, your Hulk run, you had characters killed, I mean, yeah, you had you had Marla killed by a female Norman Bates, basically, yes. and yet, it never felt heavy, it never felt dark, it always, maybe it was Dale Keown's artwork, the, like, the Hulk run got very dark, I mean, there was one point I remember the Hulk had all the skin flight off of his bones. Oh, yeah. And it never feels dark. Is that something you intend to do, or is that just your style?
1: I suppose it's my style. I mean, I tend to, I tend to manage to see the levity in even the most dire situations. In, in, in all regards, I mean, when I had my stroke in Florida and they, they were taking me in an ambulance from one facility to the other, I was, I was cracking jokes in the ambulance. At one point, the doctor told me that I'd had a cardiac episode, and I said, worst episode ever, you know. It, it. I just tend to find the humor in situations, even when the situation doesn't really seem to call for it, I guess.
0: Speaking of that, you had your stroke. You sound mm-hmm. like you're very quite well recovered. Has that altered how you I'm not talking on one
1: side of my mouth, if that's what you mean.
0: Well, no, I, I, but I mean, has it altered how you write? Because I, I, like, I remember when Frank Frazetta had his stroke, he had to teach himself to paint with his other hand.
1: No, I mean, for a while, I couldn't type with any speed because my right hand was more or less dead. I have since managed to come back, and I can now type at a normal speed, so that's good. It, it took me a while to manage to recover my typing ability.
0: Well, and speaking of typing, one of the, one of the things I always loved was, but I digress. I, it, you know, honestly, that was the only reason I bought Comic Buyer's Guide by the mid-'90s. Huh. Comic Buyer's Guide to me was the you buy but I digress and there's other stuff in it too. And I, mm-hmm. I, I have the collections as well. Does it hurt you that But I Digress, at least in Comic Buyer's Guide, is no longer being published, or was it kind of a relief after that many years to not have that on your schedule as well?
1: I really thought that but I digress would last a year or two. It never occurred to me that I would be writing it nonstop for twenty years. And the the world has changed to such a degree that I think there was having less. I mean, it used to be that I would write something, and, but I digress, and it would have tremendous impact. And that really wasn't happening anymore. People seemed to be paying like less and less attention to it, to the point where I was really wondering if there was any point in doing it anymore. And then <laughs> the magazine folder, and that was pretty much that. I didn't even know it was going to be going away. I mean, I I literally got a memo that said, Hi, we just put out our last issue. It was nice working with you. And I'm going, huh? You know, I I had absolutely no warning at all.
0: Would have been nice if you got a a final column or something.
1: Well, I did actually get a final column. Um, I wrote it for the publication Alter Ego. that just came out. So if you want to read my final, but I digress, column, feel free to pick up Alter Ego. It's there.
0: Have you ever thought about doing a third reprint book volume?
1: Well, I was disappointed with the sales on the second reprint volume. I mean, it's really weird. People kept telling me they want to see a new but I digress costume. They want to see it. They want to see it. We put it out and they didn't buy it. I um, did. I it. Well, good. Excellent. Uh, most people did not. Um, and it was very frustrating because I'm going, you know, what the hell, guys? You said you want to see it. We put it out. You didn't show up. And, uh, you know, I, I, I consider that to be a little bit discouraging. On the other hand, I have people I have people encouraging me to actually put out a chronologically accurate but I digress collage. You know, literally just collect all of the strips, all of the columns in sequence. I don't know if I should do that or not. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I don't really know that needs to be reprinted. I mean, does anyone really give a damn about what I thought about a movie 20 years ago?
0: Actually, yeah. you never
1: know.
0: I was recently rereading the first one. I personally really loved the introductions and the little editor's notes that update. You know, now Mm -hmm. it's dated, but update to the, the printing time of what has come about since then. I thought that was just fascinating look into how things had changed, but maybe I'm unique in that. I don't know.
1: Maybe. I don't know. I suppose we could do a chronological thing. I mean, I'll, it, it's something that, I'll, something that I'll discuss with my people and see if anyone wants to put that together.
0: I hope you guys enjoyed that. This interview originally aired on a Lost in the Static episode, so the Radiodrome fans are still going to be interested in it, but they may not have heard it. So I hope you guys check out Peter David's website, PeterDavid.net, as well as Peter David's work in comics, film, movies, and prose. So thank you, Mr. David, for the interview. It was amazing to talk to you.
1: we hey. Won't come but I know that it's clear I can't believe or I can feel still